0: The Apostles' Creed, as we seek to evangelize and disciple, make disciples teaching obedience to all things the Lord has commanded, it's important that we emphasize key things. Now, one of the things is, how should we behave? I want to teach people ten commands and expound it. What should we believe? The Apostles' Creed. How should we save? Gospel presentation. How should we pray? Guidance through uh, the Lord's Prayer. These are models that you can memorize and then you can teach from, and you can use it for discipleship. Now, this is also important when you think in terms of evangelism. The great reformer, John Calvin, he used the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, as the basis for the greatest book of the Reformation, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin's Institutes, as we often call it, is an exposition of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, showing that we believe and we want to behave and <clears throat> we want to pray the way the Lord has taught. Because even a Roman Catholic accepts the Ten Commandments, of the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, obviously. And so we're showing this is something all Christians, whether Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, we all hold to. And these are foundational. Of course, we see more Protestant application in the Apostles' Creed, for example. But it is important that we understand the firm foundations for our faith. And so we have these booklet series teaching some firm foundations, including the Apostles' Creed, which can be something we teach to people. Now, it's very short. The Apostles' Creed was first designed in the first century as a baptismal confession. So before a person was baptized, they would recite their belief, which was summarized especially in Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, Christ's holy universal church, the fellowship of Christians, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. There's just 12 points. In the Apostles' Creed. It's short, but it's got a lot of important material in it. So, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 to 17. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So that's 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 to 17, telling us to stand fast to the traditions. God has has called us to salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. We are called to stand fast in this truth and to hold fast the apostolic traditions. When we understand the times and rightly divide the word of truth, we will be more effective in God's service. We will be more effective in evangelism and we will be more effective in discipleship when we know what we believe and why we believe it and how to defend it in argument. And that's the goal of looking through the Apostles' Creed this morning. Give us some content as guidelines, <clears throat> a skeleton which we can hang more flesh. 1 Peter 3.15, we are commanded to always be ready to give defense to everyone who asks you reason for the hope that is in you. Are you always ready? If asked, can you define the essentials of your faith? Would you be able to give an answer for the hope that is in you? Do you know what you believe, and why you believe it, and would you know what to say? As the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers, and as the Ten Commandments is the law of laws, and as, so the Apostles' Creed is the creed of creeds. These are gold standards. These are rulers um, as an objective standard by which you can measure everything else. A creed is a confession, a declaration, and an affirmation. It's a handy statement, a summary of the foundational teachings of Scripture. The Apostles' Creed makes an ideal personal statement of our biblical convictions because it neatly summarizes the truths that the Bible reveals and requires for salvation. However, many individuals are very hostile to the very idea of creeds. I've regularly heard pastors declaring, I have no creed but Christ. In fact, the congregation where I was converted, that was their idea. They did not like creeds, they did not like repeating confessions because they said, I have no creed but Christ. This sounds all very well, but the question arises, which Christ? All too many people have a very different distortion of who Jesus is. We had a well-known political priest, <clears throat> arch-heretic Desmond Tutu, who declared he would never worship a God who was homophobic. And if homosexuals don't, go to heaven. He says, I don't want to go there. Can you imagine? Frequently when engaged in personal events, we hear individuals declare, my God would never send anyone to hell. And we need to agree with them because their God could not, because their God does not exist. Their God is a figment of their imagination. They violated the second command by making an idol in the temple of their own minds. My God would never do this. My God, would never. well, my Jesus. Listen, there's only one God and one Jesus, and that's the one in the Bible. So, you know, let's dispense with my. He's not your pet, and we his servants We had an individual apply for work in our mission and declare that she would, that she had had an abortion, because she had prayed and asked what would Jesus do in her situation, and she confidently declared that she knew in her situation, God, Jesus would have had an abortion. I mean, how people come up with such ideas. There's so many unbiblical, imaginative, idolatrous perceptions of who people think God should be. To some people, God is the impersonal figurehead of their religious convictions, something like a constitutional monarch whom they might sing about but is not allowed to interfere in their everyday life. Creeds have no power unless they are grounded firmly in scripture. The Apostles' Creed is the most widely used summary for Christianity the church has ever composed. I have been in Orthodox churches, Coptic churches, and they recite the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. It's good to know we've got some foundational documents that even uh, from different church traditions around the world, we've got some common ground that we can discuss from. The Apostles' Creed is time-tested. It is biblically faithful. It is historically rooted. It is widely accepted. The Apostles' Creed is concise. It's simple and it's short, it's brief, and it is biblical. It incorporates scriptures such as these. There is one God, the Father of whom all all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, of whom are all things, and through whom we live. That from 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. Nothing in the Apostles' Creed is of any value unless it's biblical, and it's all biblically founded. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 to 4. For I delivered... To you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So we can see from these and many other Scriptures that the Apostles' Creed is firmly rooted in the Scripture. The Apostles' Creed flows out of the Scriptures. The Apostles' Creed is faithful to what the Apostle Paul calls the pattern of doctrine, Romans 6.17, and the pattern of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13. Although the Apostles' Creed is brief and simple, it is profound and it's packed with momentous truths. When reformer John Calvin set out to explain the heart of the Protestant faith in his monumentally important institutes of the Christian religion, he structured it around the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is simple enough for a four-year-old to memorize. All my children by four years old could recite the Apostles' Creed. But it's profound enough to preoccupy some of the greatest theological minds in history. I believe, I believe the very first words of the Apostles' Creed in Latin is credo, from where we get our word creed from. From its very first word, the Apostles' Creed is personal. It's a declaration of individual faith. I believe. Although all Christians share foundational truths, the faith we affirm in the Apostles' Creed must be personal. God does not have grandchildren. I believe, by beginning in this way, the creed emphasizes our personal, individual responsibility. As a child of God, I have the privilege to say, I believe. We do not stand alone. We are part of a great communion of saints, which is mentioned later in the creed. However, while we speak in concert with all the church throughout all the ages, we are affirming our personal faith. Remember, it was first designed as a baptismal confession. Something for people to confess before going to the water baptism. When Jesus asked the blind man whom he had healed, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's in John 9. So when we stand on a Sunday morning and raise our voice along with all congregation to recite the Apostles' Creed, it can be a very meaningful experience of affirming our faith and rededicating our life to the Word of God and to the God of the Word. It's important to have our faith rooted in eternal and unshakable truth. There's two aspects to faith, belief and behavior. Our belief must be rooted in intellectual assent, knowing. But our trust must result in action. There's a difference between I believe that and I believe in. I mean, when I was learning how to parachute, I might have believed that the parachute could arrest my fall and Lead me safely to earth without breaking any limbs, but to step out of the plane into thin air and pull a ripcord that required belief in—not just that. It's one thing, I believe it can protect you as you jump out of the plane. It's another thing to say, I believe it will protect me, and I jump out. There's an aspect of faith which is intellectual assent, a rational commitment to the truth that we know from Scripture, but this must result in action. Confident faith in action is where we step out in obedience. Biblical faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Biblical faith is an intelligent step into light. It's a response to truth. Our faith is rooted in facts. Our mental ascent is the intellectual side of our faith. It deals with what we believe, the doctrines of our faith. We command it to renew our minds, not remove our minds, renew our minds. God invites us to reason together with Him. Though our sins be as scarlet, yet they'll be as white as snow. Believers are not to abandon common sense and knowledge. The Christian faith is never ignorant nor unreasonable, although some people try to make it so. The study of God's word takes discipline and mental application. Those who claim to have faith but refuse to study the truths of God's word will be very vulnerable to being led astray. You know, people come, well, I believe, well, I think, well, God spoke to me, well, I had a dream, a vision... and this prophet said, and yea, verily forsooth, and I have a word for God for you. I mean, that can lead you anywhere. But a study of the scriptures is objective. It's like the difference between um, how the wind's blowing today and that cairn that you see on a mountain. This pile of rocks that shows you, know, this is the path. I mean, that's objective. Now, those ignorant of God's word will be easy targets for deception and manipulation by the unscrupulous. There are many warnings in the Bible against being deceived by false prophets and this is why we have creeds, to protect us from false prophets and false teachings. Christianity has its roots and foundations in historic reality, truth and reason. Our faith is supported by the hard, verifiable facts of history. By the way, I can't can't, um, avoid the temptation to make a comment on this. Here you see an illustration of the Dark Ages. During what? The pagans like Voltaire called the Dark Ages, they produced cathedrals and stained glass windows like this. I mean, this is the very epitome of high civilization and biblical enlightenment. I mean, how on earth can you call this the Dark Ages? And they were producing stained glass windows like this from the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. Dark Ages indeed. As the Apostle Paul declared, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Maybe some of you have sung that as a scripture chorus. That's from 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. I know whom I have believed. However, this intellectual aspect is only one part of our faith. The second element deals with our relationship with God. Faith is not just understanding the truth in your head, but it's acting upon those truths with our hands and feet. In his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus Christ was scathing in his denunciation of those hypocrites who claimed to have faith, but his lives were without the fruit of faith. Now, Christian faith is not just knowing, it's doing. The Apostle James declared, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, we're not saying you're saved by works, not at all. We're saying the opposite. You're saved by grace alone, received by faith. But once you're saved, there will be works. It's like the fruit doesn't produce the tree, but the tree, the good tree, will produce good fruit. We have a living faith in a living God, and this affects all of life. Sound reason and commitment to study the truths of God's word and God's will will constitute the intellectual side of faith and serve to protect us from being led astray. However, it is the trust and relationship side of faith that gives it life. Biblical faith is always a matter of Head and heart. Belief and behavior. We also recognize that faith is the echo that God's call creates in the hearts of all who truly believe. <clears throat> faith, first of all, is a work of God's grace. What comes first? Repentance or faith? Well, faith comes first. What comes first? Regeneration or repentance? Regeneration comes first. You can't even repent. If God, through his Holy Spirit, doesn't work to put life within us. Our faith comes in response to God's gracious revelation. God is the source of all true faith. So God is the source not only of all true faith, but our faith comes in response to God's gracious revelation. So what does the Apostles' Creed proclaim? Number one, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Martin Luther declared that the Apostles' Creed is the prayer of beginnings. He recommended in How to Revive Your Prayer Life, start by praying through the Apostles' Creed. Start with what you believe. It is that prayer which reminds us of the essential beliefs that makes us Christian. It is the prayer that places us before God, before we have asked or even thanked Him for anything. As Francis Schaeffer declared, God is there and He is not silent. God has spoken through the prophets and He has spoken in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. What more could God say? Jesus Christ is God's eloquent and gracious statement to a fallen world. That is why the scriptures call the Lord Jesus Christ the Logos, the Word. We believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth. He is all-powerful. He is our Father. We have not only been created by God and redeemed by God, but we've been adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. One of the classic testimonies of a Muslim who came to Christ is the book, I dared to call him Father. That's a word they don't have for God in Islam. The Quran has 99 names for God, but Father's not one of them. The concept of God as our Father is unique to Christianity. Islam does not consider Allah as their Father. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. Isaiah 63, 16. The Father of Yahweh is unique to the one true god jesus constantly referred to god as father at age 12 jesus told mary and joseph he had to be about his father's business when our lord jesus taught his disciples to pray he taught them to address god as our father matthew 6 verse 9 jesus taught that to see him was to see the father he and the father are one Our lord jesus christ is living proof of the immeasurable love of our heavenly father we are not talking about the abstract, impersonal first cause or prime mover described by the philosophers. The Creed is talking about far more than the exalted God of Israel, who thundered from the mountaintops, but whose face could not be looked upon. The Apostle Paul explained that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. When we are born from above and adopted into his family. We are secured in a family far more extensive and important than any human family could possibly be. We have the privilege to witness some of the wonders of our Creator God, to sing His praises, and we have an eternal home with our Heavenly Father. It is no wonder that Christianity has produced the greatest art and the greatest music in all of history and the greatest architecture in all of history. Christianity is a singing religion. This is something unique amongst all the religions of the world. The depth and the variety and the magnificence of the music which Christians have produced through the ages to celebrate the beauty of God and His creation are incomparable. You don't get people gathering together to sing in other religions outside of Christianity. Number two, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. The Apostles' Creed is one of the most succinct summaries ever written about the life and the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, we acknowledge the centre of the creed, and the heart of our knowledge of God. Belief in a God is not unique to Christianity, but believing in God as He is revealed in Jesus Christ—that is what's unique. It is our relationship to Jesus Christ that gives our faith its distinct identity. Person who says, "You know, I believe like you. You know, I believe that there's a God, and you know, and uh, but I don't believe Jesus is, is God or Son of God. I just believe He He reflects." And they talk like that. Well, no, we don't have a common belief here at all. Uh, you cannot understand God without understanding Jesus Christ. He's the visible representation of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The name Jesus Christ is an interesting combination of Hebrew and Greek. Yeshua means God is Savior. That is from the Hebrew. The angel commanded Mary and Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 But Jesus is also called the Christ, now, this is a Greek word for the Hebrew title Messiah, meaning anointed one. So we don't just refer to Yeshua Al mashiach We speak about Jesus Christ, which is taking a Hebrew name and a Greek name and putting it together. We believe in Jesus Christ, not just Yeshua al mashiach And this, again, is showing the all nations. The combination of the Hebrew Yeshua and the Greek Christos in the name, Jesus Christ demonstrates his universal significance for all nations. He is the only Savior by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. By acknowledging Jesus as the Christ, we recognize that he is the long-awaited Messiah promised long ago through many prophets. We recognize the Hebrew roots of Christianity, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. In the synagogue of his hometown, Jesus Christ declared the prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Luke 4, our Lord quotes from Isaiah. The Apostles' Creed echoes the great confession of the Apostle Peter to the Lord Jesus: "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." Matthew 16:16. 16, 16. Now, acknowledging Jesus as our Lord is the very essence of our Christian faith. This commits us to obeying His commands. On the very first Christian, on the very first Christmas, the angel proclaimed Him Lord. At birth, He already was Lord. Who else is born King? People might be born a prince, but only Jesus was born king of kings. When we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord, we recognize our duty to worship, honor, serve and obey him. We willingly submit our time, our talents and our treasures to extending his kingdom. We rearrange our lives and our priorities around his will. His great commission becomes our supreme ambition. The early Christians are confronted with a life and death decision. Choose Christos Curious, or curious, Christus, Christ is Lord, or curious, Kaiser, Caesar is Lord. Is Jesus Lord or Caesar Lord? That was a life-altering decision. Christians were not persecuted for worshiping Jesus. You could worship multitudes of gods. The Romans were polytheists. Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire for refusing to worship Caesar. They did not worship the state religion, and that's what got them persecuted. And today, if you just accept Jesus and believe in Jesus while obeying the state, they're perfectly happy. It's when you declare Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords, King of Kings, applying his lordship to all areas of life, now that can get some commie and jihadist nations quite unhappy. One of the earliest confessions of the early churches, Jesus is Lord. In the battle between God and state, the scriptures declare King of Kings, Lord of Lords. 1 Timothy 6.15. Now that's pretty unambiguous. (laughs) Not just Lord, but King of kings, Lord of lords, as pounded out the handles Messiah. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11 Number 3 Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary To any parents the birth of a baby is a miracle and cause for much celebration It is most appropriate that the birth of one particular baby has been celebrated more than any other and all others For over 2,000 years people have celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ born of the Virgin Mary He is Emmanuel, God with us In every way, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ was extraordinary. God came to earth and he is born in the humblest of circumstances, the greatest of kings. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Galatians 4 verse 4. The birth of Jesus Christ is central to all of history. Every calendar has to acknowledge that Christ is the central figure of all of history. All our dates center around when he was born. B.C. and A.D. All of history is divided into before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so B.C. and A.D., super important, and we should continue to resist every attempt to try and phase that out. The same Holy Spirit who was active in creation of the world is now active in the salvation of God's chosen in the world. As the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, bringing life to the world, so the Holy Spirit enabled this humble, pious young virgin, Mary, become the mother of the Son of God. My spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior, declared Mary. Our Lord endured life in a fallen world. He overcame temptation. He gave us an example to live by. By the grace of God, his awesome and terrifying holiness was clothed in human flesh, making him approachable. When we acknowledge Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, we recognize the dual nature of Christ's earthly life his divine conception, and his human birth. The angel appeared to Mary and declared, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. In the incarnation we have God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, fully God and fully man. As the Son of God, Jesus Christ is the perfect expression of God and the perfect example for us to follow in Jesus Christ God has left his footprints in human history number four suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, he died and was buried he descended into hell the Lord Jesus Christ taught greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends John fifteen thirteen. You see that verse in many a war cemetery in the eternal sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, we discover a greater love than even the greatest people can show. Because in Jesus' case, he didn't give his life for his friends, he gave his life for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest love a human being can give is to give his life for his friends. But imagine giving your life for your enemies. Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his love towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross reveals the ugly consequence of sin and the incredible love of God for sinners. In those few words, suffered under Pontius Pilate, summed up his betrayal, his capture, his illegal arrest, the beatings and mockings that he endured, being stripped, flogged, spat upon, falsely accused, unjustly condemned, crowned with cruel thorns, abandoned, denied by his closest friends. The suffering of the Messiah was prophesied from the very beginning, even the Proto-Evangelitum of Genesis 3.15. In Isaiah 53, the prophet foretold of the suffering Savior, wounded for our transgressions, beaten for our iniquities, by whose stripes we are healed, led like a lamb to the slaughter. By naming Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator of Judea from 26 to 36 AD, the creed identifies both the time and the place of Christ's sacrifice. This is yet another indication of how deeply the Christian faith is embedded in history. Although it was the Jewish religious leaders who had conspired and agitated for Christ's death, they were under Roman domination at the time and they were prevented from handing down a death sentence. The high priest had to bring the prisoner before the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate to engineer the verdict he wanted. Yet Pilate found no fault in Jesus, declared his innocence to the crowds. However, to Pilate's eternal disgrace, he did not release the man, whom he three times declared innocent. What kind of magistrate is that? Compromising and crumbling under peer pressure, succumbing to the clamor of the crowd, Pontius Pilate issued the order. For the Lord Jesus to be scourged and crucified. I find no reason to condemn this man. This man has done nothing to deserve death. So I'll have him scourged and let him go. Why is he being whipped if he's done nothing wrong? But then later he has him crucified as well. As the film The Passion of the Christ so graphically depicts, crucifixion was a distinctly cruel form of Roman torture. Even more awful than the pain must have wrecked his body was the suffering in the Lord's soul. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Jewish high priest had actually already offered an answer to that question. He declared that it was expedient that one man should die for the people, so that the people should not perish. The wages of sin is death. Christ died for us. He was executed, drew his last breath in agony. He gave up his spirit in a loud cry. We have known that there are consequences for sin. The price for sin is death. The death of Jesus also demonstrates the cost of forgiveness. However, we need to remember our Lord Jesus Christ was not an innocent victim of human injustice. As he declared, no man took his life from him. He laid it down of his own free will. He had wrestled in the garden of Gethsemane, praying that this bitter cup be taken away from him. But amongst much anguish of heart, he chose to suffer and die for our salvation. Those cruel bystanders who taunted Jesus to call down angels could not have realized that he could have done just that. Although, while he could have called on legions of angels to deliver him and to destroy his earthly enemies, he could have snuffed out Jerusalem and the whole human race at a word angels were ready they were ready to do his will they must have been so grieved that their Lord could be treated so they would have been ready to annihilate these arrogant pathetic blasphemous humans on earth but Jesus willingly suffered his death was a ransom paid for us on our behalf God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself 2 Corinthians 5.19 He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found as we sing in that great hymn of Isaac Watts Joy to the World He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found After the fall of Adam and Eve to sin the human race was hopelessly separated from God but Jesus came to make atonement for our sins to redeem us as a substitutionary sacrifice He took our place the innocent suffered on the place of the guilty Jesus endured death He conquered death. He transformed death. He made death a doorway to life. Mercy is now possible and grace is freely offered because Christ has paid the price for our sin. He was buried. Joseph, Arimathea and Nicodemus went to Pontius Pilate to plead for permission to take the body of the Lord and give him a decent burial. After humiliation and the horror of the crucifixion, these prominent followers of the Lord Jesus gave honor to the body of the Lord Jesus And Joseph offered his own tomb for that. Nicodemus applied a hundred pounds of fragrant spices. The body was anointed, bound with linen, placed in a tomb. A rock was rolled into place. Our Lord Jesus Christ died and was buried. He descended to hell. He who became sin for us endured the punishment for sin. Shortly after my conversion to Christ as a new believer in 1977, I wrote this poem. He became like us. That we might become like him. He was rejected that we might be accepted. He was condemned that we might be forgiven. He was punished that we may be pardoned. He suffered that we might be strengthened. He was whipped that we might be healed. He was hated that we might be loved. He was crucified that we might be justified. He was tortured that we might be comforted. He died that we may live. He went to hell that we might go to heaven. He endured what we deserve so that we may enjoy what only he deserves. Hell is a real place. Most of what we know about hell comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord Jesus preached in hell even more than he did on heaven. The Lord described hell as outer darkness, Matthew 8.12. Where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. Mark 9.44 Jesus taught, therefore, as the tears are gathered and burned in the fire, the weeds, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom and all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So Matthew 13 makes that clear. Matthew 25, the Lord Jesus taught that on the day of judgment, he, as the Son of Man, will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus warned, Do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that can do no more. I'll tell you to fear Fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Matthew ten, twenty eight. In Luke 16, our Lord Jesus relates the story of a rich man and Lazarus. This is plainly not a parable. It specifically names names, Lazarus and Abraham. You don't get names in parables. The Lord presents it as an historic event. In this teaching, the Lord makes it clear, hell is an actual place of torment. The rich man who died and was buried, lifted up his eyes in hell, and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus with him. He cries to Father Abraham, send Lazarus with some water to cool his tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. Abraham responds, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot. Nor can those pass there to us. The rich man begged Lazarus to Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house to warn his five brothers. Lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham responded, they have the scriptures. The rich man pleaded that if someone rose from dead, they would repent. Abraham declares, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Luke 16.31 The man whom the Lord Jesus Christ referred to was fully conscious, both of his own physical torments and of the implications for his five brothers. He recognizes Lazarus. He knows who Abraham is. He remembers his brothers. He knows that they have not repented. He longs for a drop of water to cool his tongue. He hears the voice of Abraham Answering his request from heaven, he remembers that he never helped that poor man Lazarus at the gate. In this passage of scripture, the Lord Jesus pulls back the curtain to give us a glimpse of what lies beyond the grave. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Our Lord taught, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, but those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. John 5, 28 to 29. The day is coming. The hour is coming when all who are in the grave will rise. Number five. The third day he rose again from the dead. This is Christianity in a nutshell. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Until this point, the creed has followed Jesus' descent. Jesus' descent. Beginning in heaven, from the exalted place he came to earth, to be born in humble surroundings, put to death as a common criminal, plummeting to the very depths of hell itself. But now, in these two words, he rose. Everything changes. Atonement, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, eternal life is guaranteed to those who trust and follow him. This is good news. Overwhelmed by the evidence, the disciples were transformed and were galvanized into action to take the gospel throughout the world. By stating that Jesus rose on the third day, the creed fixes this resurrection for us in time. This was an historic event, not some mysterious, mystical, ethereal, mythical concept. The resurrection was well attested to in history. There is the absence of the body. There is the empty tomb. There is the testimony of many our witnesses. On at least 12 separate occasions, Jesus Christ was seen after rising from the dead. Mary Magdalene, the other woman, the Apostle Peter, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, 10 of the disciples, all 11 disciples eight days later, 7 disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, to 500 at one time, to James, to all of the 11 apostles, and others at the Ascension, Paul and John, They all saw the Lord, bodily raised from the dead. Not only do we have the testimony of our witnesses, but the dramatic transformation of the disciples. The resurrection of Christ from the dead transformed the disciples' grief to joy. Their cowardice to boldness, their skepticism to faith, and their doubt to determination. It turned Saul, the persecutor of the church, to Paul, the apostle of the church. It also transformed society and history. It changed the Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day of the week to the Christian Lord's Day on the first day of the week. The resurrection transformed the Jewish remnant into a worldwide Christian church. The very existence of Sunday as the Christian Lord's Day is a testimony to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And I think all people on a Great Commission course appreciate Sunday as a Sabbath, the only day of the week they don't do PT. The existence of the largest religious movements in the history of the world, over 2 billion people worldwide, is another powerful indication of the truth of the resurrection. We serve a risen Saviour. Death is defeated. Christ is risen, victorious over death, hell, Satan, and the grave. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Christ, though he may die, yet shall he live. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we can rejoice that our sins are paid for. We are forgiven, justified by faith. Because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we can rejoice in the prospect of eternal life. Because of Christ's ascension, we can know that he has all authority and that his great commission will now be accomplished on earth. Because of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, we do not need to trust in our own abilities, but in his power alone. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6 Jesus was seen in all kinds of places and situations after the resurrection. He met his disciples while they were together. He met some of them on their own. He came to them during day and he came during the night. He came to them while they were fishing and he came to them while they were walking. He came while they were eating. From downtown Jerusalem to the Galilean countryside, he was met by both men and women. People spoke with him. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They drank with him. They saw the scars in his hands and side. He was undoubtedly alive a lot can happen in three days from the crown of thorns to the crown of the king of kings number six he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of god the father almighty after reminding us of how the greatest of kings was born in the humblest of circumstances and how he suffered a shameful criminal's death even tasting the torments of hell the apostles creed takes the most triumphant turn When all seems lost, the disciples were stunned by Christ's victory over death and the grave and Christ's triumphant ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. Christ has conquered. He has overcome sin, death, hell, and the grave. He has ascended to his Father and he has opened the way for believers into the very courts of heaven. Now up till this point, the creed has been dealing with what Christ has undergone in the past. But now the creed turns to what he is doing in the present. I'll leave that for a second part. Are there any questions as we've looked at the first half of the Apostles' Creed? Questions, comments, complaints, criticisms? Yes. I think it's neat how there's so much path in each little phrase. You know, each little, just a couple of, like, keep your nose. It's like, wow, there's so much. You know, just that phrase you could spend all day Yes. just that and like what that means and all that which is pretty neat so that just a, few, you know, just a couple of paragraphs or whatever is, is a lot <laughs> so when I'm at a leadership training in the bush in a church I haven't been to before I will normally start with the ten commands I'll go on to Apostles Creed I'll go into to gospel presentation Lord's Prayer because when you start with these foundations these the pastors can spend all year preaching and expanding on these foundational principles. Yes, Dylan? Do we know who wrote the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed were put together, doubtless, by followers of the Apostles, people who were trained by the Apostles, uh, people such as Polycarp of Smyrna. So we, we know these were done by the Church Fathers. And it's called the Apostles' Creed because this is the teaching received from the Apostles. Do you have a better answer to that, Ryan? other comments, questions? Yes. Um, it seems kind of interesting um, that it seems like it's so packed and loaded and really well and um, I'm thinking in the US I've maybe heard it mentioned in church maybe twice it seems like, is there a reason most people I know you mentioned some people think oh we don't do a creed, we just do Christ mm-hmm. um, is there other reasons why people wouldn't ever talk about this or something, because I've never, like, never heard never preach I don't know, because there are churches where they will recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or one of or the other creeds every Sunday there are churches that do that and there's others who never do it <laughs> some of it might be referred to once in a blue moon uh, so how many of you would come from a church where they'd recite the Apostles' Creed a couple of times a month at least uh, not necessarily a couple of times a month but uh, ok I'll, I'll give to other I'll give to other options I'm just asking first of all um, you know let's start off every Sunday ok A couple of times a month. Okay, a couple of times a year. Uh, uh, Never. (laughs) That's actually a pity. So we should have the Apostles' Creed at least during the Lord's Supper and baptism services. I mean, at the bare minimum, I would say. That should be standard fare at the Lord's Supper and standard fare at the baptism. And during catechism classes, it should be expounded upon in great depth. If one Luther certainly believed in frequent praying through the Apostles' Creed not just reciting it but praying through it yes uh, this is something that most churches have done through most of history so it's a bit disturbing that we're losing some of our heritage in the 20th century any other comments? yes by praying through it did he mean going verse to verse and expanding upon it? Yes, I mean, by personalizing the prayers. Uh, he he believes you should, obviously, you pray through the Ten Commands. You pray through the Ten Commands, confessing how you failed in each of the Ten Commands and praying for the grace to be able to fulfill each of the Ten Commands. By praying through the Apostles' Creed, it's thanking God and praising yes. him for much of these truths and applying it to our lives. And then he'd say, pray through the Psalms and make the Psalms your own praise. Any other comments, observations? Yes. There are past. we are going to get to that. We've oh, only okay. gone through the first half. Oh, okay. we, we, we're getting to, to, um, to expound each of these. Yes, uh, but there are, the passage says he led captivity captive. Um, uh, in 1 Peter 3, speaks about him uh, going uh, down uh, and preaching to those in prison, and it also refers to him leading captivity captive. Um, Would that be in Colossians 2 where he led um, uh, captivity in his train like triumphal procession. So there are allusions to it. Now we're not suggesting that he suffered in hell but that he went triumphantly to um, uh, declare his victory. Uh, So the ideas of some people teaching that Jesus had to suffer in hell uh, I mean that's ahistoric, that's unbiblical, that's heresy. Um, But the scripture does suggest that he has the keys over well he says I have the keys over death and hell and Hades, Uh, he's the Alpha and Omega that he has power over uh, hell, uh, that I'm building my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, there's all these concepts of of the Lord kicking down the gates of hell, leading captives free um, and like a Roman conqueror would have the chiefs and generals that he's conquered in chains behind his chariot, the suggestion isn't Colossians, how the Lord led um, made a show, open show over the demons and defeated them and like they were enchained behind his chariots as uh, in his triumph in his victory so uh, it's suggesting he has conquered hell rather than that he has gone there to suffer in hell that's not biblical but this, the scripture concept I think the greatest concept be I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it that he can even go down and kick in the doors of hell and lead people free. So how you apply that from uh, 1 Peter, from Colossians, uh, from Matthew 16, and so on, uh, obviously we can see Christ has power over hell. He's greater than, he's conquered. And that's, that's the suggestion that, that he's come from heaven, he's been degraded by men, he's died, gone to grave, even gone into hell, and he's risen above it all, ascended. Raining, coming again to judge the living and death. But I'm going ahead of myself.